Hello and welcome to the Niche Podcast for Friday, December 14th, 2012. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaver. And we're here to talk about building apps that run everywhere. This week, cross-browser location hash inconsistencies. Say that 10 times fast. Thoughts on CoffeeScript and the genius of NPR's Create Once Publish Everywhere platform. Please stand by. The Niche Podcast is next. Good morning. Good morning. Having a rough one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, having a stressful one and, and um, yeah, but think of an ear infection. Oy. Yeah, it's not fun at all. No. There's a lot of bugs going around here, that's for sure. Yeah. I've luckily dodged them so far. I don't know how Erica and Cooper had either a hideous cold or the flu. I can't tell which, but somehow I... Perhaps escaping to London, I dodged it. Again, didn't they just get over that? Um, we're probably it's probably still tail end. It was probably uh-huh. ramping up last week and ramping down now. But there's still like, you know, Cooper coughs himself to sleep every night, which is really yeah. feels good to listen to. Yeah. As a parent. Yeah, Kira, Kira went one year. She was, she was sick from September to March. Ugh. She had a cough, and then we then we had tubes put in her ears. It all went away. Mm. No fun at all. Although he does seem to, uh, the, the two-year-old, a two-year-old seems to weather sickness a lot more easily than a 37-year-old. <laughs> yeah, they just don't care. Right. Yeah, it's still top speed every second. Yeah, you just kind of have to follow them around to the Kleenex and like clean up the little slime trail. Oh, yeah. It's like a, it's like a racing snail. Yeah. It's gross. Just constantly washing everything. <laughs> yeah. So, talk about building apps run everywhere? Yeah, might as well. All right, that's a good idea. So we do have bug report, I understand. Uh, yeah, a bug report and a report on developer stupidity. Nice. Yeah, um, but, but it was interesting because I had made an error that was not immediately present or immediately obvious because... Firefox was figuring out what I was trying to do and doing it anyway. <laughs> so, Firefox is so helpful in that way. Yes, it is. <laughs> Whereas in, in WebKit, it just broke. Mm. To be honest, I think I prefer WebKit's behavior. But anyway. Yeah. It is arguably yeah. uh, arguably a big feature of the web that it's so forgiving, but uh, at least with HTML. But with JavaScript, I, I, I kind of agree with you. I'd like it to just break, please. Yeah. Yeah, because it's going to break somewhere, so. Right. Prefer it break everywhere. <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't. You don't get lulled into the false sense of security. Yes, yes. Not that I want to use. Want, not that I want everything to use like IE's JavaScript engine or anything. No. I'm not going to go that far. You don't want everything to break everywhere. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I kid. Um, I kid. I. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what um, was the? Uh, what were you what were you trying to do yes um i have working on a working on a project and i have a website and that has some oh, i have some links on have a have a page loads and have some links on the sidebar that load other content on the page and basically what they do is they just they just hide the current div and then show the one that i'm linking to in the in the sidebar so mm-hmm. i mean all the contents there i'm just hiding and showing you know very very simple stuff mm mm-hmm. mhm 
And so then when I did that, of course, I had to support support the the notion that when like if you type in a URL that has a hashtag on the end of it, then you know the page is going to load up with that that div visible instead of the first one on the page. Right, kind of like deep linking. Right. Mm-hmm. Sort of a shallow deep link. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's um, it's like waiting. Waiting pool or something. <laughs> yeah. So what I was doing, um, I have there's a there's a a navigation menu at the top of the page, and in the mobile view, it it changes completely from just a just a, a list of some like horizontal tabs to a drop down menu that has various types of animation on it. So I for for a number of reasons, whenever you click on a link to go to a deep link on another page, I couldn't like, I couldn't just return through and, and navigate to that page. I had to update the browser URL with JavaScript and, and go to the page that way. Mm-hmm. And so what I was doing is I was checking this link and or what I was what I meant to do was I was going to check this link and replace the the location and the and the URL board, replace it with the location of the link and just navigate to the page. Right, and when you say replace, you're you're actually setting like location dot hash equals or yeah. location, yeah, as yeah. opposed to uh, push state or replace state, which, if the dear listener is not familiar with, is a uh, another a newer way or a new way uh, to manage what's going on in the history and in the uh, in the location bar. Right, and it's probably what I should have been doing. I was just, you know, just trying to get it working. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure which support for push state. I think is not 100% yet, so I don't know if you'd still yeah, want to... Yeah, well, we, we do need over. like IE7 compatibility on this, so... Yeah, you'd still want to fail over to what you what you did in the first place. So. Yeah. Yeah, so what I... Um, what I was doing, I was updating... I was, tr- I was updating... Yeah, I meant to update the URL. Um, what I had done, and instead of updating you know, location dot, dot, you know, href... I I was ex- I was I went to I was updating location dot hash instead with the new URL because the, the URL was more than just a hash. Oh right, I can see. Okay, that makes sense because you're. I could see that thought process like I'm going to update the hash with this whole URL that includes a hash, and you could see why where a different browser vendor would look at you know certain browser vendors would look at that and be like, ah, well I know what they mean to do. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The you know, there there was a hash on the end of the URL because I was deep linking to a part of another page, but I had to go to the other page first, so I needed the whole URL there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was exactly what was happening. Um, so I had that you know that moment of not thinking in my head where I was updating the hash instead of the the actual location, and Firefox was was loading this URL. And instead of putting it in the hash, it was saying, "Oh, uh, yeah, that that um, doesn't start with a hashtag. We we need to replace the whole URL." Mm. But Chrome was just, you know, it, it was appending it where, um, well, it it wasn't appending it to anything. It was just like it, it would go it would go to the new the new page, but the URL. I don't know. It, Chrome handled it oddly. Yeah. Like it, it was it was trying to update the hash like I had told it to do. 
Right. And and the end result was a uh, I was loading up a ended up loading up a blank page with no content. Mm. It's, it's I never really thought about it before because whenever I've messed around with the hash, I'm always staying at the same URL. I've never mm-hmm. I've never really messed around too much with multi-page uh, hash dealings. So what are you supposed to do? It, it must you just set the location .href to a URL with a hash appended to it, right? Right. Yeah, I never even thought about that. Yeah, and that's that's what I meant to do all along. I was just had that typo in there, and well, I guess it's a typo. I guess it's more of a a, a moment of not thinking on my part. Yeah, more of a brain but, fart than a typo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah more, of a, more of a brain fart than a typo. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, so Firefox could tell what I was trying to do and and did it, and, and Chrome you know, did exactly what I told it to do and failed. Right. So it, it but um, and it made it made it tricky to, to track down because the URL wasn't getting... Like even even looking at the URL that Chrome was setting, it was hard to hard to just tell what it was doing because it was having weird things done to it. Huh, that's interesting. So you like basically testing Chrome, and you're like, what the f? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It started out started out. I noticed it when I was testing on mobile. Oh yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and then so I thought it, I thought it was a you know just a, a mobile Safari problem at first, and then I pulled it up in Chrome, and you know it was still happening there, and it's just. Uh, okay, I started digging deeper and eventually found it. Mm. Oh, that's a good one. You could see, that's a fairly honest mistake because you're thinking about hashes and you're setting URLs and yeah, yeah, you could see someone you could see someone getting bit by that. So, deep linking in the kiddie pool. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a good one. Um, you also mentioned uh, while we were uh, chatting before podcast about uh, you had some thoughts on coffee script and also something else that I've never heard of and don't know how to pronounce uh, yeah <laughs> uh, well I guess I'll start with coffee script then nice. um, you know I'm I'm kind of kind of getting away from as I mentioned last week starting to get away from PHP development mm-hmm. that sort of thing so I thought well I'm making a change anyway I'm gonna step back and just like, really examine my workflow and, and how I'm doing things and see where else I can make improvements too mm-hmm. Because I certainly think not doing PHP is making an improvement. <laughs> but so I, I decided to take another look at CoffeeScript, mm-hmm. and because I had I had looked at it before, but I kind of brushed it off as just well, you know, I, I don't really need this because right. to me it just seemed like all it really did was clean up the syntax, and I guess probably coming from a PHP background, having semicolons and curly braces everywhere didn't really bother me. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but you've been doing a lot of Ruby and Python lately, so yeah, I've been doing a lot of doing a lot of Ruby lately. So I decided to take another look at it, and I have to say, after giving it a closer examination, I I I do really like it. It does make for much cleaner code, Mm -hmm. and still being able to mix in pure JavaScript where you need to and work with other libraries, and um, you know that that's. That's nice. I feel like there are probably instances where you have to work where, like if you're working with another library like jQuery or what have you, there are probably times where your code can get a little inconsistent because you may have to be be more, I guess, more syntactically more verbose with some of the jQuery mm-hmm. kind of thing. But but overall, it does. Yeah, I, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I had brushed it off before as kind of this thing that's not needed. And, you know, I still, I really don't think it's necessary. Right. It's certainly, you know, you can certainly build large JavaScript applications without CoffeeScript. I mean, sure. You know, it's not a, not a, not a necessary thing at all. It's just a nice to have, but I do, after using it for a while, I do think it's, I do think it's nice to have. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's always the argument that, you know, everything after assembly language is syntactical sugar. Right. It's like, you know, we, we're not writing in C for a reason. Right. And uh, so I, I kind of had the same reaction to it as you did. It's like, well, here's another thing I could learn that might be good. Uh, but it's it falls into the same category for me as uh, SAS, mm-hmm. where I'm like, this seems like a really good idea for somebody else to use. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to do um, any kind of CSS authoring now without uh, without uh, SAS or less. Yeah, so, so I I've been after last weekend doing all of that um that you know, I I worked on that uh what the heck was it? It's the Christmas movie Smackdown. Mm-hmm. And I really had a bad experience as I talked about last week. It was just really tedious. And uh it kind of it it softened me up to things like coffee script cuz I was like, you know, this sucks. <laughs> this is not yeah. fun at all. This isn't because like the the reason that that uh, the last time I was doing any serious when I first started doing serious PHP development, it's got a pretty shallow learning curve. And mm-hmm. uh, but there was a little hump at the beginning, stupid stuff like the difference between single quotes and double quotes and like getting your, you know, dealing with your super global arrays and how to set up your server and all that stuff. But it wasn't too bad. And I had a lot of help. But once I got over that hump, it was like pure exhilaration of like, I don't even know that much about this and I can make stuff. Yeah. And that's gone. So (laughs) the exhilaration part doesn't get me over the hump anymore because it's like, yeah, I can make something. That's all I've been doing for the last 10 years. And, (laughs) you know, and now it's like the little things like, like, you know, writing a for loop. Just, I just want to claw my eyes out. Yeah. And even though, even though, you know, you can have code snippets all day long and autocomplete and all this stuff, it still just drives me crazy. I don't want to have to think about the, I want to think about the language less and more about uh, the the app, you know, the this thing I'm trying to create. Mm-hmm. But it only, ha- it doesn't happen to me so much with the, with uh, building the API stuff, but it definitely, something about the front end, um, I it's tough to describe what it is. I think I think the front end is more prone to spaghetti codishness. Yes. So I'm a little bit more. It's more sensitive to the syntax. And I'm and I'm also incredibly. I, I suppose like a lot of developers, really anal about my cl- code clarity and things being self-documenting. And if if there's no clear way to write something, it drives me bananas. So, so yeah, I'm client, client think- side code can get. It, it gets messy. Yeah, it does. It's like and no it feel, way around it, it. Yeah, and it feels like in PHP it gets messier than it does in... Yeah, there's just so much... Language. So many characters. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that scene in Mozart. There's too many notes. <laughs> or Amadeus. Too many notes, yes. Yeah. So I, yeah. have you looked uh, at Yeoman at all? Uh, No, I haven't. Yeoman is... So... Uh, in the course of all of this, all of this uh, going on, I've I've been seeing pe- more and more people linking to it, and it was similar to CoffeeScript. It was like one of those things. Where I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a. It seems like a good thing, and it seems like you know it's all smart people working on it, and it 
integrates all of this cool new stuff and uh and i'll keep my eye on it and see where it goes but i have a feeling that using something like that would take the pain out of the um the uh, take the things away that i don't like about CoffeeScript and SAS and all that stuff because it kind of sets up your environment it gives you some scaffolding Mm-hmm. automatically pulls in a bunch of stuff that I pull in all the time anyway, like, you know, uh, HTML boilerplate and a lot of stuff like that. Uh, so it's, I, I think that, I don't know, maybe take a look at it. I, I'm, I'm going to play around with it a little bit. I want to rewrite that, um, probably not until 2013, but I want to rewrite that PHP app that I made uh, last week. Uh, now that I've got the database and the API all set up, rewrite the front end in some way that's nicer. It'll look yeah. the same, but the code will be cleaner, easier to extend. So what do you think? So so the thing about CoffeeScript that um, f- freaks me out the most, less so SAS and all that, but CoffeeScript in particular, is that is f- I don't know that it plays well with the Chrome developer tools, which is my dev, dev browser. Mm-hmm. Like how do you, can you set, you can't set breakpoints or anything. It, it, it's like... Because it compiles the CoffeeScript into JavaScript, which is now code that you're not familiar with. And then, like, how do you debug it? Yeah. Um, yeah, that does that does bring up a good point because, like you said, it compiles the JavaScript. You're including the JavaScript on the page. Um, I, I do find that it compiles to – it's like the JavaScript that it compiles to is very clean. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was impressed with, with that. And to be honest, it's compiling to JavaScript. It's cleaner than prob- probably cleaner than what I was writing. Right. So, <laughs> so um, I feel like I I want to say one of the web browsers, be it Chrome or Safari, has like you can you can edit. Your coffee script files. I mean, I've, I feel like I want. I, I want to say, want to say one of them has some kind of support for coffee script in it, but I'm not 100 percent certain on that. It might have just been no, an article I, I read where it's a planned thing. I don't know. Right. I mean, Paul Irish is, I think, a, either a, a huge coffee script advocate or the original dude behind it. I don't know, mm-hmm. um, but and he's also on the Chrome DevTools team. And I do sort of remember him talking about them adding, uh, adding CoffeeScript support directly to the DevTools API, mm-hmm. which or, or panels, I should say, not necessarily an API, but um, and it's they already have a feature that kind of reminds. They have two features in DevTools that are probably a lot of people don't know about. Uh, one is that you can beautify minified JavaScript like live and yeah. set breakpoints because a breakpoint is, you know, a line based thing. Uh, so you can take this one gargantuan line of JavaScript that has been minified for production and then explode it out just visually in the browser and it allows you to set breakpoints in the, in the browser, in the dev tools. Yeah. That's really nice. Yeah. That's super huge. And then there's another feature where you can add, a, you know, a particular format formatted comment to your JavaScript that will, um, that so like a lot of people will for performance reasons you don't want to make a ton of network requests for a whole bunch of different javascript files mm-hmm. but it's extremely useful to during development to break your javascript files into separate files and then compile them into one big one in the minification process 
So uh, when you go to debug the production code, the you can't, or you can, if you use these comments, you can specify like a file end almost. Mm-hmm. And then the dev tools will, will know that. And then in the, in the, and then treat them like separate files. Even though your page loaded one JavaScript file, it'll treat it as different sources. Oh, okay. So it seems like a small step from there to, to something like adding CoffeeScript syntax support where you're viewing, it's, it's tricky though, because they'd have to reverse engineer the JavaScript uh, that CoffeeScript created and convert, like it'd be like converting JavaScript into CoffeeScript and then displaying right. it. I uh, feel like that wouldn't be overly difficult. Really? I mean, well, I don't know. I mean, you can you can go. I feel like if you can go one way with it, you can you can go the other. Mm. But, um, I, I could be completely wrong. And uh, of course, I guess another thing to point out is the the CoffeeScript build process. Uh, it's you know, it's going to go it's going to go through uh, JS land, mm-hmm. or it's not going to build. So if you do have to do debugging, it's you know, it's it's debugging behavior. It's not fixing errors in the JavaScript. That makes sense. But you still you could have logic errors. That's the right. Like where your your flow is just wrong. Right. So I'm I'm trying to sort of Google around while we're talking about this to see if I can dig up some kind of information about it. And I didn't find that, but uh, uh, Jonathan Snook, it looks like he created a, he or someone on his team at Shopify built a something called Coffee Console, which is a Chrome extension, mm-hmm. which appears to do this. And then also he links to a, uh, he links to some documentation from Paul Irish about how to uh, create custom panels in your dev tools. I did not know about this. This is really cool. <laughs> that is cool. Yeah. So we'll link to those in the show notes. But that's that's really, honestly, that the debugging a- aspect is the probably the number one excuse I gave myself for not having to look into jo- CoffeeScript very deeply. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd like to like to try CoffeeScript on a on a large project mm. and, and uh, see. That's what Infinite uses, and I have mm-hmm. to say, it's incredibly, it's a pleasure to read. That is for sure. Yeah. You just go in and you're like, oh, this obviously does this. <laughs> you know, it's 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 not harder to read. That's for sure. No, no, it's not. So it's not, and you know, it has a it has a looks like it's going to have a really short learning curve. It's you know, you, you don't have to learn any of the logic. The logic is the same. You just have to. Just have to to get the cleaner CoffeeScript syntax. Yeah, leave out your semicolons and braces, and <laughs> I remember thinking that the looping looked delightful. Yeah. So, take another look at it too. But I think for me, I, I won't adopt it. If if the Yeoman, the only chance of me adopting it is if Yeoman provides so many small advantages that I'm like, wow, this is, I'd be an idiot to not use this, mm-hmm. you know? Cause it's like, it just looks really, it looks like it does everything you'd want to do as a modern, like mobile first web developer. It's like got everything. So I haven't, I haven't looked at it since it was, and I saw the video when they first announced it when it was still in development, but yeah, and it was okay, but it was a lot of like roadmap stuff. Yeah. 
but it's definitely, it's been, a lot of people have been working on it. It seems to have a, have legs for sure. I definitely took another look at it. So that's cool. I mean, one thing that on the, with the web is that compared to native, the, the, the tooling and workflows are very disjointed compared to native. So it'd be good to, it's always good to know about new tools. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So on the theme of, uh, uh, apps that run everywhere, Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about web stuff, of course, because that's a great way, great place to put apps that you want to run everywhere. But we also think about a lot of other, uh, a lot of other environments, and you know, there's, you know, the web is not the only place where content gets pushed or where services are required. And we've done stuff in the past over SMS and IM and Chrome extensions and uh, a variety of different environments. We haven't done a voice interaction one; that would be good. But. Uh, did a, uh, a corporate mobile strategy session yesterday, you know, for a huge client whose name rhymes mm-hmm. with Crisco, and uh, <laughs> and I I was really trying to the goal the goal of the talk was to impress upon them the magnitude of the shift that we're going through, and it it you almost can't help getting a little sci-fi about it because the point is to the point with a large organization is to get them to look ahead far enough to so that the things they're building now don't have to be thrown away in three years or five years. Right. So, and the, the, the rate of change is so intense that looking ahead five years is like you have no, either things are going to be the same in which case everything will be fine or it's going to be like Star Trek, you know? So you're like, well, I got to lean to the Star Trek side of things <laughs> so that, because, you know, that's the thing that, that's the risk, is if it goes Star Trek, then we're like, all right, now what do we do? So, uh, and we've talked before about, I, I feel fairly strongly, I'm pretty confident that in the next, uh, I don't know, I want to say, I'm going to say, give myself a big range, say two to five years, probably closer to three, two to five years, we're going to have a, some kind of very popular screenless device, connected device. Yeah, I I agree with that. So, uh, yeah, and and like, what? How do you? How's everything we're building now for mobile? Like everybody's retooling for mobile, post desktop, but there. But there, I feel like they're retooling specifically for smartphones. Yeah, it does feel that way, and I agree. Like we're gonna have some kind of screenless device. Like, like I just I just bought like an up a couple of weeks ago, mm. which is this, this little wristband. You wear it, it analyzes your activity and your sleeping patterns and all that stuff. Yeah, I freaking love it. And I mean, right now, it, right now it syncs to your phone, but, and you have to plug it in and sync to your phone, but I can, I can just imagine a version of that that, you know, it just has, maybe you plug it in to set it up initially, but then it has some kind of Wi-Fi support or. Mm. Yeah, that's, I loved my sync. up band until it broke. <laughs> yeah, I have, the, I have the new version, so hopefully it's, hang in there yeah they they uh, they had a big recall and they probably took it in the sh- i know they took in the shorts on that one so the new mm. one uh the the promos for the new one are all about how robust it is and how they rebuilt it from the ground up and i'm telling you that thing i love that thing it changed my behavior for the better from day one it was great the yeah o- the only bummer was that it didn't give you real-time feedback you had to take it off and plug it into the headphone jack of your phone to actually get the data off it uh, which wasn't horrible, but it didn't, it did kind of stink. 
Yeah, unfortunately, you still have to do that. Right. So the, the trade-off, though, I'm sure was about battery life. And mm-hmm. I would, given the option between a short battery life but live syncing and, and what they did, I would choose what they did as well because I'd rather have the long battery life. Anyway, the, the interface on the thing, um, it's just a single button, and it's got uh, the one I had, I think, had one or maybe two lights that would shine different colors and, and would, yeah, it was just one light, yeah. and it would flash or be different colors. It would indicate all these different things to you. Yeah, the new the new one's got two. Actually, the the new one's the new one's got three. It's got a like a little sun and, and moon for setting different cycles, and um, like a little orange indicator light for when things go horribly wrong or, yeah. or when it's sinking. The battery's dying or something. Yeah. So I think mine was the same, but uh, it it um, you know it's got no it it's that's an interface. You know what I mean? It's and it's like. Uh, it's really usable and it's fairly intuitive. Like you learn it once and it's like, you know, you double click the button or you hold it down or, you know, there's a series of things you can do depending on the state that the thing's in. And it uh, has lights and it will, and it vibrates too, right? I know it vibrates. Yeah. I don't remember if it vibrates when you click the button. Uh, yeah, it does when you switch like from day to night. Okay. So... I feel like that is a. I feel like that trend is going to continue. That we have these screenless interfaces because as more devices get connected, um, they're you know they're not all going to have screens. So they'll be like, a lot of them are going to have this kind of like remote iPhone interface, like the Nest thermostat. You can connect it with your phone and, and find out things. Uh, but but the Nest still has its own UI that you can interact with directly. The Up Band has a UI that you can interact with directly. Uh, and and I think there's going to be some kind of audio interface on a future device, a future connected device. So anyway, the point is that uh, I was trying to like really stretch people's minds and be like, you know, what, you know, think, try and think past phones. Like phones are such a big deal now that it's it's difficult to think beyond them. And you know, but the the mobile I think is just the first uh, like killer app of wireless. And wireless is the big deal. Like right. wireless computing, like forget the phone. Like if you could connect an earpiece to Wikipedia, you'd be like a superhuman. Hmm. You know, if it was good enough, your brain would be the size of the planet, you know, for in terms of memorization and recall. Yeah. So, I mean, talk about superpowers, you know, not even hands up. Yeah. Heads up display, no hands. It's like, that'd be bananas. And granted, it would be really difficult to implement that. It doesn't exist now, like, but neither did an awesome touchscreen before the iPhone. So, um, the the advice that so after sort of proving to them that I was insane <laughs> by saying that you know wireless is going to dematerialize haircuts, like we're not going to need we're not going to need salons anymore because we're all going to have avatars and we just buy a haircut digitally. <laughs> um, uh, th- Stick a few pixels off the top. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> a few pixels off the top. <laughs> exactly, right? Like, I was like, I was like, what, what in your business, what could you dematerialize, or what, what could dematerialize from you? It's like, what physical good do you create that could become digital? And they were thinking like phones, and they had some, they had some ideas, but they're very near term. I thought. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what about something crazy, like, like a haircut or, you know, something that it feels like it'd be impossible to digitize. Um, but anyway, so then Healthcare. from there, what? Healthcare. 
Yeah, and healthcare came up actually because that one of the things the one of the people was like, well, it's really difficult. It's it's hard to imagine um, having uh, customer service or sales dematerialized like that because the experience of being in person is so much more rich than um, you know than any kind of telepresence that exists right now. And I was like, well, first of all, telepresence could get better. Uh, yeah. But but barring that, even even if it doesn't. If other things about a digital service um, are possible that aren't possible in person, then those conveniences or those pros could end up outweighing the cons. So like uh, an in-person visit to my doctor, for example, has a lot of upside, but it also has a lot of downside. Like I have to go there, I have to find parking. It takes like a travel time out of my day. It's, uh, you know, there's all sorts of, all sorts of issues. Um, the if it you know but there are also some some pros but if we could create a digital representation of that that either outweighed the pros and cons of the in-person visit or just took away parts of the in-person visit that stunk and just left the parts that were important Mm -hmm. so partially dematerialized it where you only had to come in to actually get an injection but you could i mean my doctor not only accepts but encourages patients to you know, if you have like a skin rash or something, he's like, don't make an appointment. Just take a picture of it and email it to me. And <laughs> nice. I, I might be able to immediately diagnose it or I might tell you to come in. But, you know, there's no reason yeah. to come in, you know, just for that. And, I, I you know, <laughs> I probably just outed him to the uh, ADA. It's probably totally illegal. Probably. But uh, anyway, the so f- from there, it's like, OK, what do we do about it? Like, what can we do today to start planning for? Um, a future that is unknowable, like beyond unknowable. And it just comes back to the same thing over and over. It's like clean up your content and set up APIs so that whatever crazy thing comes up in the future, you'll be able to adapt to it very quickly and easily without a lot of interdepartmental or, or similar communication. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the the example that I gave them was, um, I guess in 2009, Daniel Jacobson, who at the time was at NPR, but now is at Netflix, he started going around um, to sort of promote, I'm not sure why he was promoting it, but he did a lot of work to evangelize this platform they created called uh, Create Once, Publish Everywhere, which is how they cope with things at NPR. Yes. And it's... Uh, it's kind of straightforward when you look at it. There's there's a lot of complexity in the details, but the concept is very simple. But it was super radical the first time I saw it. Uh, and it it the situation NPR is in, I think, is the kind of situation that everyone's going to be in in a few years, which is that they're they're taking in content from a whole bunch of sources. So they've got member stations that are submitting input. They've got um, uh, contract reporters. They've got uh, all sorts of, you know, I suppose they have staff writers, but they have content coming in from all sorts of non-employees. So you can't just mandate that things have to be entered, you know, into IE6 on a PC and this is the format, you know. They have to ingest all of this material that is going to be really polluted. Yeah. And and not formatted in a very structured way. And then they, they do this intake process where they, they do this automated scrubbing on it and they put it in a relational database and then uh, they flatten it into a flattened database, and then they create an XML representation of that, and that becomes the basis of a 
uh, an incredibly fast data series of data API feeds that are really just returning XML documents. So since they're static documents, they're not hitting a database, they're, they can be cached, they can use CDNs to distribute them all over the place. Um, and they throw like memcache layers all over the place. It's really, really clever. But the, the, um, in the slides, I found a, one of his presentations, he showed like this Winnie the Pooh story. He's like, this, this is once, this is kind of like the life cycle of a particular story. And, you know, here it is in the database. This is what it looks like in the database. It's like, you know, Winnie the Pooh, yada, yada, yada. There's a photo, there's an audio file, and there's a, an article, which is, I, I assume is a transcript of the audio. Yeah. And then he goes on for like 10 or 12 slides and shows the exact same article in their iPhone app, on their mobile site, on their desktop site in member station site, in another member station site, in a native app built by a third party, in iTunes, and in the in the info panel in iTunes, which was the most, I thought the most powerful one, because the info panel in iTunes for the podcast does not support HTML rendering. It doesn't parse HTML. It has to be plain text unless you want people seeing tags. Yeah. So, nice. yeah, and that is like a, a very common place to want your content. Yeah. So it, it just kind of hammered home the, um, the, the, a couple the of value of it. First of all, the value of it. Yeah. Uh, the value of it. And the, uh, there's several points that it, 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 uh, was worth mentioning. One is that today you would benefit probably from this at least a little, uh, and in the future, assuming that things don't stay exactly the same, you know, and assuming that the, the smartphone is not the most advanced consumer device that we're ever going to see for the rest of eternity, then this is going to benefit you for sure. Um, the other thing that it hammered home is that there currently are places where HTML, like HTML is not the safest format to store your content in because there are places right now that it doesn't render. And they're, yeah. and I think there's just gonna be more. So what NPR did, this is a tricky problem to solve. What NPR did was as the, as the content came in, if it had HTML tags, it stripped them out and the primary representation of the article was just plain text. And it, but it would, check this out, it would, in another field, it would track where, what tags were where. And, oh, wow. Yeah. And it would say if, you know, at character 702, there was the beginning of a, 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 like a bold tag or something, whatever it was. Yeah, and people could opt to pull out the HTML version if they knew that their client could render HTML. Um, and then it would just look at where the tags were, so like the the tag mapping, and put them back in. Yeah, it, they didn't. I, if I remember correctly, they didn't want to use uh, specifically use the tags that came in because they didn't, you know, because they could be bad. They also wanted they right. kind of wanted to like uh, validate the HTML. Yeah, like sanitize it some. Yeah, so they took out, I think they stripped some tags and didn't put them back in, but they did leave in certain ones. And it gets really tricky in at least two places. One is if there's an embedded image. Um, and, you know, if you, it, it's not 100% clear what to do if you have critical images like figures that are in line and need to be um, appropriate to the context. The, yeah, well, the, we, we've talked about that before with Markdown, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in, in, line, inline images are just, you know, they can get weird. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that uh, comes up is is links that are not, 
um, inline links, but more like calls to action. So if you're going to have a call to action in your article, so like if you have, you know, you, you have an article and it's got, you know, it mentions Richard Branson, it's not uncommon to imagine like linking to Richard Branson's Twitter account or something like that. And it's not like, it's not critical to the article, but it's just useful, you know, potentially someone wants to surf away and read about Richard Branson and then come back. And that's fine. You just strip out the A tag and the, the text still makes sense. But if you have a link at the bottom of the article, like, you know, some kind of call to action, like, you know, uh, uh, buy now or subscribe to this feed or something like that. It's like, well, what do you do with those? Yeah. How do you identify that they're a call to action and not an inline, you know, like, like a reference link? Right. Like if you turn that into, if you just turn that into text, it's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah, it's not going to make any sense. Right. So that's, and that was something that he said was kind of an ongoing challenge for them was that they had to, they had to manage at the content creation level, which I, I do think we've talked about this too. I think that, that, um, using Markdown is a great idea because it looks fine in a plain text environment and you can easily convert it to a ton of other formats. And, but the, the, the flip side of that is that it will affect the way that we write articles Mm -hmm. and it will, um, and I, and I think this image thing and the call to action thing, I think both need to be addressed with like a almost like a you know strunk and white this is the way you write content this is the way you write smart content that yeah. can be flexible everywhere you don't put calls to action in the middle of two paragraphs for example yeah yeah i mean we have we have all these formats for this is how you write html this is how you know <laughs> there's no reason to and and like tons and tons of, of rules relating to the english grammar you know mm-hmm. really there's there's you could just say this is this is how you write your content if you want it to work Mm -hmm. and i've had i've definitely had experience with this in writing books because there are certain there might be three ways to say something and they all make sense but two of them make it really hard to put in a book yeah and it's the same kind of thing like you don't want to say um you don't want to say things like in the next chapter i'll discuss this further because you don't know that the chapters might get reorganized and there's no way to go back and find that those places where you you're not going to remember to go back and change and change relative type stuff. Yeah. So what you and you also don't want to say things like uh, in the following image, yada yada yada, because the page might reflow weird, and the page then the image will end up on the next page, or it might end up at the end of the chapter. It's like sometimes it's really unpredictable. Mm-hmm. So you have to refer to things by location, specifically by location, and uh, the way that. Well, which is not the exact same uh, issue here and, and not the solution to the issue here, but it's uh, a similar, it's an analogous type of problem where if you're putting together a book, it affects the way you write the, you actually author the words because you know it's going to be in a book and you only want to refer to things in a particular way. Right. So I think the same thing's going to happen for, for writing, not even, I almost said it on the web, but I, I, I think it's bigger than that, just writing for shareable content. So, and that's, and that was just the content part. The API was pretty crazy too, but the, I thought the, the content piece is really, is really the critical thing, the critical story. Yeah. Yeah. Getting, getting that in a, in a format that you can pull out and then, and, and bend and shape to whatever you need. Mm -hmm. So the other big takeaway from that, from 
for an organization from an organizational standpoint from a talk like that is that they get all freaked out because you know they're like you know you're flipping through these slides and a lot of them look like crap <laughs> you know <laughs> like here's the Winnie the Pooh story looking like crap on this site and here it is looking like crap on that site and here you know it looks okay in this but the the branding is all different and it's all you know and I think that 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 is something that marketing departments and people who are real sensitive to branding guidelines and style guides and people who are real sensitive to that stuff which I think is important stuff uh just can't you can't handle the the sort of they want the reach they want to be in all those places but they want to have control over the experience yeah somehow. and you can't you can't do that you have to give it up you can you can control control the look and control the styling and branding and all that when it's when it's on your stuff right but when you open it up to allow it to be on other stuff you have to let go of that yes and and the way that I say that to people is like you can control an experience, but you can't control all the experiences. Right. And so you've kind of got a choice between there's two two continuums that I see. There's one that is uh, it's got you know market reach on one end and and pixel perfect control on the other end, and you can't have both. So if you want a big market reach, there's no way you can be pixel perfect and control the 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 packaging of the experience. No, can't have both. And the other one is uh, flexibility versus optimization or adaptability versus optimization, where on the one end of the spectrum, you know, you you from a content standpoint, you're writing the content, the whole the whole conversation we just had about that markdown might change the way we write content uh, is you you want to write the content in a way that is most flexible so that it can, you know, be repurposed in a variety of mediums as opposed to optimizing it for a particular container. Like on our experience of the website that we have exactly three column inches to fit this story in and there's a widow at the bottom or an orphan, which I can never remember which is which. So we're going to put a, <laughs> we're going to put a break tag before the second to last word. So there's not one word dangling at the end of that paragraph on our website on this fixed width thing that we have. And now you've polluted the database with like layout instruction yeah. specifically for one experience that now everyone else is going to have to suffer from. And of course that's, you know, that's silly anyway, because you you know, people can zoom their browser, they can resize the window, they can do a million things that would just, you know, ruin your pixel perfect, precious web page design. So anyway, it's, a, I think it's going to take a long time for organizations to like get comfortable with this and, and, the benefits of a long-term, uh, long-term thinking and like a huge market reach style of thinking. It is. And I think, I think it's going to take a long time, not just, not just the companies themselves, but you know, the company contracts with contracts with a design agency and you know, the designers are going to want pixel perfect. And yeah, I just, yeah, I, I think it's going to, it's going to take a while. Mm. Yeah. It's, I, posted a couple of cool articles on Twitter today. One was from a list apart and it was about embracing the adapt, embracing, uh, uh, the web aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, John Alsop said 12 years ago, it's like the web is inherently flexible. If you're not, if, it, if you're building web pages that are print, you know, uh, like, you know, a fixed width print column, you're doing it wrong and you're just making it hard on yourself. And, you know, I think I said a couple of weeks ago, like HTML is responsive by default. CSS is the problem. 
<laughs> you know, you don't, if you just, if you, if we didn't want to, it's like CSS creates a problem that it then is trying to solve with media queries. This, uh, so anyway, the, the, um, uh, I think the, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. I'll just link to the article and it's like, uh, it's, it's a lot of things that really appealed to me about progressive enhancement, not graceful degradation. And, you know, do we really need all these images that we've gotten, we've gotten gluttonous about all this bandwidth and we're just throwing images on pages just to put them on. And, uh, you know, it's, this is like all these really great points in this list of part article. Yeah. I am. Um, I've done a lot of design lately with, with very little images. Mm-hmm. And it's just no. When you're talking about things like responsive, responsive design, and things like that, it's it's a lot easier. So I guess I've, I've replaced a lot of images with icon fonts. Yep, that's a great move. Yeah, I I do I definitely do some of that, or I'll use like uh, HTML entity codes, or but just try and stay away from images as much as possible. But I'm I'm reading more and more that people are having great results by just making. Uh, JPEGs that have a their big dimensions but low mm-hmm. quality, and that the file sizes are really low, and it's and they just look great. Uh, another thing I just read was that um, if you have a picture of like a person, and you you know the person is the subject of the photo, and you kind of like blur the stuff that's not their face, or crop out any like busy background stuff, it makes the file size really small. Because oh, yeah. the compression will just be like, oh, it's black all the way from here, all the way over to here. <laughs> and uh, they show a couple of examples of that where like a nine kilobyte image went down to a four kilobyte image. And it took me like, it took me a, a few, you know, looks back and forth to even figure out what the difference was. Right. Right. Because I think we're just sort of naturally drawn to the face. Exa- yeah. And so it's exactly what it said in the, in the article. And it worked on me. <laughs> Another thing they did was they said they said sort of stylistically monochromed the photos. Mm-hmm. So like they switch it to grayscale and then add like a spot color overlay, like a almost like the Verge website homepage, and that like cuts the file size in half because they're only using it really black and one other color. Yeah, that that aesthetic annoys me though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. So I think you know, I, I think flexibility is going forward it's nice to it's nice to think about optimization and just be like oh you know it's it's kind of comes from the canvas first mentality of web development which we've all done you just like think oh here's this 1024 by 768 space to fill and you fill it and then it's like oh this doesn't look good on mobile so <laughs> i th- i think flexibility is just going to be the name of the game and and uh, control is just gotta start to disappear. Yeah, yeah. It it it's gonna take a shift in mindset, but mm. you know, like mobile mobile first responsive design is a start. Yep. Yeah, Josh just did a. Have you have you been reading about style tiles at all? Uh, not a whole lot. I mean, I'm I'm familiar with the basic idea. Yeah, there's not a ton to it. I mean, it's yeah. it's like it's like a mood board almost, and. Josh just did one for uh, Josh Clark, Global Moxie on Twitter, 
Uh, he just did one for a project that I'm involved with, and it's like a one-page PDF that says this is the text treatment of a header. This is the text treatment of a body. This is a callout. This is these are the this is the iconography for the site. These are the the five colors we're going to use, and here's where we use them. But it's like one page, one screen full of info, mm-hmm. and and the, the client was kind of you could sort of hear them nodding over the phone, like oh okay, that's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. Nothing's bothering me. And yeah. then he did a uh, he had a single page responsive. He had like a single page responsive web design that in, in basically implemented the styles in a um, with like lorem ipsum text. And right. actually he, he used bacon ipsum, which I hadn't seen. <laughs> nice. And, you know, and he he had the navigation like, you know, in wide widths, it was down the left hand side and at small widths, it was, you know, at the bottom and or you could pop down to it by clicking on a hash link at the top and the client audibly gasped over the phone like they were like two other people on the phone they're like wow that looks awesome (laughs) and i i think it's the shift oh that's how i got on the article in the first place it's like the it's almost like developer or designers you're just fooling yourself going to photoshop first and designing a page layout in photoshop but if you design elements okay fine but you know when when you deliver that to the client it gives us this like illusion of control mm-hmm. and you don't see any of the actual interaction and like the i want to say animation it's not even animation you don't see any of the reflow which is a huge part of it yeah and really hard part to program for or to design for so i was really really it's the way i do stuff for myself i haven't i i, I can't think of a time i've ever done a client pitch using like a style tile and uh, like a it, a web page mock-up and like, but it's, it was like totally worked. And they're like, that is perfect. That's awesome. Nice. Yeah, it was great. So pretty excited about that. And it seems like I'm hearing a lot of the more, you know, the Chris Coyers and other like, uh, you know, Malarkey and all these guys talking about um, a new kind of workflow, like maybe not going to Photoshop first and, and maybe not presenting comps back in the like back in the day right so be interesting i i i tend to like my my initial take will tend to be that i'll still i'll still end up going to photoshop Mm -hmm. but it's not like i'm there to produce a mock-up i'm just just playing around with ideas that then get pulled out and into the into the code right like ideas for different different treatments of certain elements and so I mean, sort of, sort of the same sort of thing you do, uh, you would do with style tiles, mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of mood boarding type stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I was really surprised by there's sort of two things in my uh, CSS. I tend to go through in a couple of passes and do like a pure. I always do my development the same way. It's it works for me where I'm doing a web page, it's like I do the HTML first, I try and make it as semantic as, I I do make it as semantic as possible so that if you looked at it with no style sheets and no JavaScript, it'd be a a good looking page that was readable. Not good looking, but it made sense. You could read it. And uh, and then I layer on CSS next. And I'll do the CSS in like two very distinct sections. One is like uh, essentially fonts, colors uh, but nothing that is um layouty or margin you know no margins no paddings none of that stuff just just 
do the type treatments essentially in, in the color scheme. Mm-hmm. And just adding that is huge. It makes a huge difference. And then after that, then I start like nudging things around the layout and, you know, spacing them out potentially a little bit differently. But I always feel like that. I want to keep that separately because that's where I start to feel like, first of all, I'm getting into territory that I'm not that good at. And second of all, I'm getting into territory where I'm really just pleasing myself. And I'd probably be better off making it look as much like readability as possible. (laughs) You know, it depends on what you're building. Like if you're building like a, a content site or a blog, then to me, it's like, you know, why bother? <laughs> you know, people are just going to f- flip on, read it later anyway. Or they're going to read it in Flipboard. Yeah. So who cares? Like, why waste all that time? I don't know. I know a lot of people, heads probably just exploded when I said that. <laughs> why are you, Chris Coyer, why are you wasting all your time designing your website? <laughs> no one's going to read it on your site anyway. Now, obviously, there's plenty of exceptions, but yeah. but for me, it's just, I just like, I just want it to be easy to read. Yeah. And focus on the content. But then again, I'm not a designer. Well, you, I think you probably watched last year <laughs> as my eyesight got worse and my designs got simpler. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. So I'm, I'm back to, to, to making pretty things now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're always my go-to person. Is this is this high contrast enough, or should yeah. I? Yeah, I'm definitely prone to like trying to make this sort of secondary text a little too light. Mm-hmm. But oh, even even I tend to do it sometimes. I think. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I we're probably we're getting pretty close to the end of the episode, but I, there's something I read that I wanted to bounce off you that I think a uh, dear listener might be interested in, mm-hmm. and. Maybe it's just uh, fodder for a future episode. I don't know that there's anything we can really discuss so much, but I read an article just before we got on the phone about um, uh, sort of, I, I don't remember the guy's name, but I'll link to the article. And <clears throat> I don't know if he was blind or if he just worked at the, uh, it's like a screen screen reader company. I think it stands for, is like NVMD or something. Um, but they, they write screen reader software mm-hmm. and assistive devices. And he was kind of lamenting on Twitter the fact that it's, in his experience, it's been easier to find native iOS apps that were more accessible, access, you know, friendly to accessibility than it was for the corresponding web experience. And I think the tweet was something like, surely it would be easier to make your web, your mobile website more accessible than going to the trouble of making a native app more accessible and I was just sort of curious if you'd had any experience with that or if, if your experience mapped to that or um, you know I I haven't used a lot of screen reading software mostly what I've just done is things like large text mm-hmm. and I, I will say that I I did find that in a lot of cases like for sites that had dedicated mobile browse or mobile sites mm-hmm. rather than something that was just say a responsive layout um, I found, I often found the, the, the mobile version to be a lot more accessible than the desktop version. That makes sense. Cause there's probably just let fewer things. on Yeah. It. Yeah. There's just, just less distraction there, but I haven't done a lot with screen reading software, but what I, what I suspect is happening 
is, you know, we're getting into situations where people are using mobile frameworks, and it's the same sort of thing we were talking about with Bootstrap, where you end up with a lot of, a lot of divitis and, and non-semantic markup in order to, to present things mm-hmm. using, using the mobile framework of choice. It's, I, I suspect that's where a lot of the problems with screen readings and mobile web, screen reader and mobile web is, is coming from. Yeah. That and probably a lot of, you know, a lot of very JavaScript heavy. Right. Yeah, it's true. You know, it's, I suppose it comes back to your business goals and everything, but it's like, uh, I don't know. I'm a design basher. <laughs> what can I say? I just think oh, in a lot of cases, it's like, fine, design away, but don't cause problems. Yeah. You know what I mean? Anyway, a fun uh, a fun uh, thing to do. Um, are you? I forget. Are you, is your phone iOS or Android? Uh, I have both, but the the one I use most is the iPhone. Yeah. Okay. So for for fun, dear listener, uh, if you do have an iPhone, go into general settings and turn on. Uh, go to the accessibility, and play around with some of the settings in there and see how it affects your experience. Or go to your you know turn on voiceover and go to your site. And see how it does. I think you'll, yeah. you'll probably be pretty surprised. Yeah, turn on turn on the accessibility options on your phone, and then close your eyes or sit in a dark room. And <laughs> you, well, dark <laughs> room doesn't work; it's backlit. But <laughs> cl- close your eyes and and navigate around to the different icons on your screen. Yeah, enjoy. Yeah, so you can see you can see why um, you can see why that would be. You can see why people wouldn't be sensitive to it i guess because they just i think people would be a lot more sensitive to it if they had to deal with it obviously yeah i don't know it's hard to yeah i think actually one of one of my and objections to the iphone when it first came out uh was the lack of a tactile keyboard because mm. you know i can i can pick up my phone and i can dial it in the dark or i don't have you know i don't have to see to be able to dial the phone right and Oh, it's a it's a cell phone. If if you're just talking about, you know, calling up, you know, can, like using it for convenience, yeah, okay, maybe whatever. But you know, if you if it's a again, it's a phone. If you need to make any kind of emergency phone calls or or that kind of thing on it, not I felt like like not having the tactile keyboard would make it really really inaccessible, like as you know, in order to in terms of making phone calls mm-hmm. yeah but it does have that it does have that like what is it triple click on the home button to yeah yeah you can you can set it up so that it's voice voice dial and all that it's not it's not siri but it's like sort of like that you can do certain things uh, that are voice activated i haven't played with it yeah. all that much but uh, you can do it so maybe we should close with a quote i want to to say a quote from the article, actually, that's the article is mm-hmm. called "The Web Aesthetic" and it's on a list apart. And uh, one of the quotes is from uh, Tim Berners-Lee, and he says that the primary divine design principle of the web is universality. Universality, terrible word, but you get the idea. And he says it should be accessible from any kind of hardware that can connect to the internet, stationary or mobile, small screen or large. And I would I'm, I would add hasten to add or no screen. Yeah. There's another quote in here too about uh where is it? 
John Alsop says, it's the nature of the web to be flexible and it should be our role as designers and developers to embrace this flexibility and produce pages which, by being flexible, are accessible to all. Totally agree. And there's one other good one that... Where are you, you bugger? Hope this isn't too tedious. <laughs> Websites need to be just as easy to use when displayed as plain text or read aloud. Totally agree. Yes. Progressive enhancement should now feature throughout the design process. There's tons of great quotes in this article. It's really good. So, dear listener, either go to a list apart and search for the web aesthetic, or you can go to find it, find it in our show, show notes. notes, right? So that's our show for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaver. And we hope you join us again next week for the Niche Podcast. See you later. Bye.